Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. again, Blockhead listeners. Welcome to a new episode of Blockhead. Have we got a special one for you today. We have on board with us the daily cartoonist for one of the longest running, most iconic comic strips in the history of comic strips. Yes, indeed. We have got Marcus Hamilton of Dennis the Menace. So, oh boy, this is a treat. Marcus Hamilton is one of the nicest, sweetest people I have ever had the good fortune to sit down and have a two-hour conversation with. And he is not only that, he is a fabulous storyteller, and he's got a bunch of them to tell. So, uh, about illustration and the history of illustration and, and the publication industry in the 1970s, and then we talk about... Hank Ketchum, and there are some stories to tell about Hank Ketchum, and this is just so good. One story rolls into another, one right after another. You can't believe it, and it's like a hot fudge sundae. You've got to eat it all in one sitting. You can't split it up, and that's why today this is a big two-hour episode because there's just no way, once you hear the first part, you just couldn't live <laughs> without hearing the second part right away. It's just too good, and so I'm, I'm giving you this big big chunk of blockhead today um, because Marcus is a real special guest and this this was a this was a real treat I really had a wonderful time talking to Marcus and I could go on and on with the superlatives here because uh, I just think so highly of him and and I had such a great time talking to him and uh, boy that's just, just that's what this show's about for me <laughs> and hopefully that translates to you and so why waste any more time let's get right to it okay Marcus Hamilton the daily cartoonist of Dennis the Menace and myself in conversation hello Marcus welcome to Blockhead thanks Jeff I, I'm really excited to be here and thanks for the invitation well, you bet. Having one of the most accomplished cartoonists working in syndicated comics today on the show is a big thrill for me. And it's also a thrill because you are one of those carrying forward the torch of one of the greatest comic strips of the last 70 years, Dennis the Menace. Yeah, just hearing you say that scares me um, <laughs> because when I I try not to even think about all the people around the world that will be looking at what I'm drawing today, because if I thought about that, it would make me nervous. <laughs> I never uh, thought of it that way. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah, but I try to just think about uh, Hank would want me to do the best I can possibly do, and that's what I try to do every day. Let's uh, think a minute. So how many newspapers is Dennis the Menace in currently? At one point, it was in a thousand, but I think it's down to about eight hundred and some now. I haven't heard any figures lately, uh, uh-huh. but I, I think that's the last one I heard. 
Is that that's probably due to the closing of newspapers rather than editors canceling yeah. Dennis the Menace? Probably yeah. so. I'm yeah. sure a lot of newspapers have closed down, and there goes the comic pages. Right, and and so Dennis appears not only in the United States but appears around the world. Yeah, it, at one time it was in 48 countries, translated into 19 different languages. So. Yeah, wow, it's been that's around for dang. a long time in a lot of places. Well, yeah, it's been around for 70 years and it debuted with in in the early years of the 1950s. I think it was 1951 on the heels of Peanuts and Beetle Bailey and uh when yeah. you think of it that that's pretty remarkable that that you know all three of those strips are still going. I know, uh, it really is. Yeah. It really, it really is something. And, uh, they, and I mean, those three strips, I think those three strips set the template for pretty much everything that followed in the comics after, uh, yeah. you know, after their first 10 years, I mean, everything in one way or another owed something to those three comic strips. Well, I, I hope that's what happened. Uh, but a lot <laughs> has changed in those last Next year will be 70 years that we'll be celebrating our anniversary in on 2021. Yeah, uh, but I was a kid back when Dennis started, and uh, I was always reading the comics at my grandparents' house. And uh, my grandmother would keep all the the daily newspapers stacked on the back porch. So when I went to visit them, they knew I was going to go down the hall to the back porch and start pulling out all the comic pages and I would cut out the strips that I really enjoyed at that point. And, and Dennis was, uh, one of them peanuts too. And what was it that you, you were responding to in those strips? Um, I guess it just seemed fun to do. And, um, the first time I ever remember drawing, was when I was about five or six years old in church. My mother used to bring a notepad and pencil with her to keep me quiet during the sermon. And so I'd sit there and doodle. And And I know the, the Disney cartoons, animated features, really inspired me. I, in fact, I had two goals in my life when I was growing up. I either wanted to work for Disney Studios or be an illustrator like Norman Rockwell, who was known as America's illustrator back in the 50s and 60s. So, yeah, I was influenced by that and reading the comics. And, I mean, ultimately, then, you actually became both of those things, did you not? You were a, a, a working illustrator for many years before you became a comics artist. Right. Well, uh, with, with those two goals in mind when I was younger... Uh, I went to college and majored in commercial art, and uh, I, I wanted to know more about illustration. And at some point, um, my wife and I were married going into my junior year, and she, she worked really hard at a shirt factory to pay all of our bills while I was finishing getting my degree in, in art. But um, I, I wanted to be able to either send some samples to Disney studios or to newspapers and magazines and all that. Um, but I did send some samples to Disney studios 
back when I think I was a senior in college, and I got the uh, Mickey Mouse rejection slip in return, which I wish wish I'd held on to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's the kind of thing that uh, at one point or another, every kid who wants to go into comics or animation or whatnot, I'm sure you weren't alone in writing those letters and sending your samples off. Right, I'm sure he uh, Disney was bombarded by young people wanting to be cartoonists and getting to do some of those animated features that, that always amazed me but uh, since I was rejected from that then my goal uh, was to go after illustration and um, I really I worked at the TV station that was my first job out of college working in the art department at a local CBS affiliate and I learned so much in a couple years there, uh, just uh, by being around actual advertising and preparing uh, color slides that would be used. This was back when TV was converting from black and white to color. So mm -hmm. all of us in the art department had to be very aware. We had a color guide next to a black and white guide, so we would know what red looks like in black and white on the TV, we had to be careful using certain colors so they didn't just blend together in gray because most people still had black and white sets back then. But uh, it was an education. I stayed there a couple years and met uh, one of my best friends who is a very famous cartoonist now, Jim Scancarelli. Um, oh, of Gasoline yeah. Alley. Yeah, well, he and I worked in the art department there and uh, really enjoyed being around the entertainment business and getting to do artwork, too. Uh, but uh, we both left and went. He became a freelance illustrator, and I went to work at a design studio in, in uptown Charlotte and learned more about advertising art. And um, But on my own... I just started sending samples uh, like color slides of some of my paintings I had done to all of the art directors at every magazine I could get an address for. And eventually I got a phone call from the art director at True Magazine up in New York. And uh, this was when I was still working at the design studio in downtown. And my boss always encouraged me to do whatever I wanted to do. He did not discourage me from trying to get freelance work, but uh, the art director at True Magazine uh, said he liked the samples I had sent. Would I be willing to do 40 drawings of all the new model cars coming out the next year, 1972? Ooh, I don't like to draw cars. I'm a people artist, but I couldn't turn down my first opportunity, so I said, sure. So I stayed up all weekend that, that weekend and just did little black and white drawings of all the, the new model station wagons and sent them off. And uh, he called back and said, I like those. Would you like to do a full page color illustration? And I thought, wow, this is amazing. Uh, so, um, yeah, th this is what led me into a career as an illustrator. And the art director at True Magazine moved up to golf digest magazine and uh he continued to call me and say would you like to do a sketch for this and they weren't paying too much but it was just a, a real opportunity to do what i'd always 
wanted to do uh, as a career. So as more and more of those uh, assignments came in, uh, I'd get phone calls from different magazine uh, art directors who had talked to the art director at uh, Golf Digest. And, and I thought, this is fantastic. So I quit my regular job uh, in 1972 and became a full-time freelance illustrator. And uh, that's, that's not an easy step to take because you don't know when you're going to get a paycheck. But it, uh, what I liked was I wouldn't have a boss looking over my shoulder every day telling me what to do. Um, but, right. Uh, yeah, you know what that's like. It's quite a trajectory that you've taken from working in the television uh, industry, which was, I think, yeah. it sounds like you were working in the TV industry in the late 60s, right? Yeah, that, it was yeah, so, 60, yeah, 65 through 68, I think it was. Yeah. my, You know, it's funny. My aunt worked in uh, local broadcasting back in the 60s, and so it was kind of neat. She used to be able to introduce us to some of the, the television personalities, the local TV personalities and stuff, which was what a big, for a kid like me at the time, what a big thrill that was. In the 60s, because there was so much TV that was local, there was a, a, a kind of an energy about it and a sense of creation, I think, at least that I, I felt when she took me around to the TV studio. I mean, you know, you had a little town like the one I came out of had a local TV station. And, and uh, there was a sense of, you know, possibility that I think maybe exists on the Internet now, but, but you know, kind of went out of TV in those days after a while. But uh, that was an exciting period to be there. It, it was. I really enjoyed, just like you were saying, uh, getting to meet personalities. Uh, whenever uh, a movie or TV star was, you know, making the rounds to promote their TV show or a movie that was coming out, they would always come to the TV station to uh, be on their, we called it the noon report back then. And, and I'd always go out into the studio when I found out uh, Johnny Cash was going to be there. Uh, oh, my gosh. Idiot. Edie Adams came. That was uh, Ernie Kovacs' wife, and uh, Dennis O'Keefe came, and and I've still got the autographs. Uh, I would uh, print up a little card with their name on it, and then take it out and say, "Would you sign this for me, please?" And uh, it was just a thrill to meet those people, and that, a great opportunity. I'll, I'll never forget that. Well, I was going to, yeah, I was just thinking, yeah, Charlotte's a big town, so uh, big name yeah. people would come through, and that I can imagine that must have been just a thrill. So the the leap from television to going out on your own, that's that was a big, uh, big risk, and and uh, I'm assuming, you know, your wife was, was supportive in that, and uh, as she was when you were working through college. Yeah, she, she was, uh, I always appreciate her. We we're celebrating our 57th anniversary this year. So uh, she has put up with a lot of uh, ups and downs in my career uh, and college and all that. But uh, yeah, I started uh, becoming a freelancer in 72 and uh, rented me a little studio in a basement under a bridal shop. Uh, it was cheap. And uh, so um Right. Before that, though, I almost forgot this. Um, when I quit the uh, design studio, I had had an opportunity to go to work 
in Atlanta, Georgia for a um, graphic design place called Graphic Graphics Group. And uh, I had seen a lot of their illustrations in McCall's and Ladies Home Journal. And I thought, wow, that would be a step toward doing national work. So that was when we sold our house in Charlotte. Our two children were just two and less than a year old at that time. Uh, so we moved down to an apartment in Doraville. And I went to work at Graphics Group learned so much from the staff there of artists, but we really missed Charlotte. And after six mm -hmm. or seven months, we decided it's time to go back to North Carolina. So I gave them my notice and we moved up to, to Charlotte and got us an apartment there until we could afford a house again. And that's when I rented me a studio so that I could freelance. Mm -hmm. And, I did a lot of advertising work for local companies like uh, Duke Energy and uh, the Natural Gas Place and all that. But I kept sending samples to these art directors at magazines. And I got up my nerve and Kay, my wife, supported me in this. I wanted to go up to New York by myself and take my portfolio and just make some cold calls on all of those art directors at the big magazines. So I did that and uh, stayed, I think stayed at the Taft Hotel by myself. And each day, I stayed about four days, each day I knew the address of all of those magazines because I had done my homework, I, uh, looking mm -hmm. through magazines to see what the art director's name was and all. I would go in and make a cold call and i say, I'm, I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. I'd like to see the art director if I could. And tell the name. I said, do you have an appointment? I said, no, but I just flew in from Charlotte to stay for a couple of days. And, and they'd always said, well, let me check with the art director. I never was declined an opportunity to meet with the art director. And I don't know how that worked out. But uh, while I was there, I picked up a freelance assignment from Cosmopolitan. From wow. Good, yeah. Good Housekeeping, mm -hmm. Reader's Digest. Uh, a little magazine called Beyond Reality. Oh, cool. Uh, so when I got back home, I was just thrilled out of my mind. I couldn't believe <laughs> I had done that. And some of my artist friends said, I can't believe you would go make cold calls. You should have made appointments with those art directors. That was rude. So the next year, I decided I was going to go back again. But this time I called ahead and said, I'm going to be in New York these days and I'll be bringing my portfolio by. I'll call you when I get there. So unbelievably, when I got up there and started calling the art directors, some of them I had never worked for, they said, uh, I'm sorry, just drop your portfolio off on Tuesday afternoon. You can pick it up on Wednesday. And I thought, why did I waste my money and my time coming all the way to New York when all they wanted was to see my samples? So from that, I learned a big lesson about freelancing. You don't have to go in and see the art directors in person. I started printing a folder every six to eight months with samples printed on the folder, and, at the, uh, and it would fit in their file cabinet. And at the top of the folder, it had my name 
and my contact information, and that's all they needed. That kept me in business for 21 years. Wow. That's amazing. What? So did you have a wide variety of images or did you focus in on like, I mean, so often not, times now, um, the instruction for an illustrator, a young illustrator coming up is to focus in on a, a kind of niche, focus in on, you know, if you're doing golf illustrations, then, you know, in the style of, you know, uh, Leroy Neiman or something. Make sure you do golf illustrations. If you're going to do, you know, stuff in the style of Disney, you know, do it, continue and make sure there's consistency. Was that the case or did you show them a wide variety of things? What did they want to see in those kinds of um, sample cases or sample folders? That's a good question. And uh, I learned early in my freelance career that I was going to have to be versatile in the styles and techniques that I used because... I would be competing with illustrators that were famous for one particular style. And my big heroes back then had one particular style, like Bernie Fuchs and Mark English and uh-huh. uh, Bob Peake did movie posters and all that. And so I worked in every medium, black and white, pen and ink, uh, acrylic paint, uh Dr. Martin's dies, humorous, realistic, whatever the assignment called for. And so when art directors would call me, uh, they'd say, I got your folder. I, I see a lot of different styles here. How many uh, artists do you have working for you? I said, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for the compliment. That's just my work. I have to be, to be able to compete, I have to work in a variety of styles. They said, well, I like this particular style. I'm going to send you a manuscript, and if you will do it in this style, a full page or a double page, they always, the art director would tell you, you know, what you were going to be responsible for doing. And it was always a fun challenge because every assignment was a different challenge. And I look back over some of the things I've got in my studio and hanging on the wall or packed away in a closet, and I think, I don't know how in the world I ever did that. I couldn't do it today if I had to. (laughs) Did you send them originals? Yes. This was before computers and uh, before FedEx and fax machines. Everything was uh, over the phone and first-class mail or special delivery. And I would wrap these uh, huge illustrations, like 20 by 30 inches, some of them that were double-paged. I had to be sure they were wrapped safely so they could not be bent. And uh, then they would call me when they got it. And there was, uh, I'm trying to remember what the law was about copywriting. And to them, the magazine owned your artwork. That was back in the, the 60s and 70s. But then they passed a law that the creator of the art is the owner. The magazines are merely paying you a fee to use it. And when that came along, I started getting all of my artwork back from the magazines, which was great. I, I'd never even thought about it. I thought, once you do it and give it to them, that's theirs. But mm-hmm. uh, some of the artists must have gone to Congress and pushed that through or something. In comics in particular, that's always historically been a big issue when 
we go back and talk about, uh, you know, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and how they signed a contract for Superman for $130 and Jack Kirby at Marvel and, and all of the artists who worked at Marvel and DC during the years. The whole idea that they did all this work that ended up in the shredder, some of it. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. because it went directly to the publisher. And then somewhere around in the mid-70s, late-70s, there was a lot of activity, per- particularly I remember Neil Adams being in front of the, leading the pack in some ways for Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, trying to get artist rights, you know, so that they would yeah. get their work back, which I think is, you know, just so important uh, because yeah. a lot of times the, those images can be used again and if they were being used again, like, for example, I've seen illustrations by Jack Kirby, John Romita, all those Marvel guys on T-shirts for years and years and years. And, you know, you do those illustrations and the company's receiving a, a fee for them, but the artist isn't getting any royalty, you know. And so there was a lot that a lot of inequity that had to be addressed. And, and so it's good that they started sending you your work back. Do you know when do you have any idea when that might have been? It it had to be in the the late seventies, I would think. That makes and, sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, that that was something I was thankful for. Whoever whomever started that uh, fight to give the artists their work back, I'm I'm appreciative of that. Um, but I got to do work for every magazine I'd ever dreamed of. I, uh, <laughs> I can, I've got a list of them somewhere, but uh, I did a lot for Golf Digest. I became one of their regular illustrators. And um, and Tennis Magazine was also owned by the same publisher, and the, the art director there uh, gave me a lot to do. But um, the ones that I really enjoyed uh, were uh the Saturday Evening Post was the highlight of my illustration career. Um, Norman Rumsfeld. Yeah, because I was following in his footsteps. I thought that's right. where he got to start. So um, I had done some in, inside artwork for story illustrations in, in the Saturday Evening Post and loved doing it. And then one year, 1978, uh, the art director called and said, um, we're going to be doing a a feature for our Christmas issue that will include Bob Hope because of all the times he's gone overseas to, you know, entertain the troops uh, during Christmas season. Mm -hmm. And um, we just wondered, would you be willing to do a painting of Bob Hope with a Santa Claus outfit on? And I I was under the impression it was going to be used inside on the, the story. And uh, when the magazine came out, my sister up in Lexington, uh, an hour or so north of here, she called and said, Marcus, I just saw your painting of Bob Hope on the cover of Saturday Evening Post. And I said, really? I didn't know that. So I went around to the library, wherever they would have copies. And and sure enough, there was the painting. Uh, and they did pay me a little more that time because if you do an in, interior illustration, it doesn't pay as much as a cover. But I was just blown away. Well, Bob Hope uh, was coming to Charlotte uh, a couple years after that, and um, he was going to do a performance at our local amusement outdoor arena thing, uh, Carowinds. They have a playhouse 
uh, theater out there. And a friend of mine at church worked for Carowinds, and he said, Bob Hope's coming. Would you like to meet him? I said, well, of course. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so he got permission for Kay and me to go down to the Palladium Theater. And before Mr. Hope was to do his performance, he was standing out on the stage by himself. There was nobody in that uh, outside amphitheater. Uh, and they let Kay and me come walking up toward the stage and Mr. Hope saw me carrying that original painting of him with the Santa Claus outfit on. And when I got up there, he said, where'd you get that? I said, I actually did the painting. He couldn't believe it. He thought somebody in New York had done it, I guess. Uh, mm. But anyway, I had a, a picture. Kay took a picture of me standing with Bob Hope and, and he signed the painting, which is hanging in my office now. And uh, he he was very nice, and uh, but that was a thrill. I thought Norman Rockwell used to do covers for Saturday Evening Post. Here I got to do one. That was the only one I ever did. Um, well, that's great. Yeah, but I got to do a lot of celebrity type illustrations for other magazines, like the youth magazines. I uh, did uh, Reggie Jackson, that was with the New York Yankees. Oh, on sure. The cover of on the cover of Children's Digest and uh, did a painting of Ronald Reagan for a Saturday Evening Post interior thing. And uh, it was, we were going up to Washington to take the kids for the uh, Cherry Blossom Festival. And on the way up there on the radio, we heard that Ronald Reagan had just been shot. Oh, wow. I know, I couldn't believe it. And I yeah. had the painting in the car with me. I was oh, taking it there to give it to one of the senators from North Carolina to see if they could get Mr. Reagan to sign it. Well, uh -huh. that changed our plans, of course. And uh, unfortunately, uh, he did recuperate from that being shot. But um, yeah, and I uh, did a whole montage of all the presidents, Lyndon Johnson, Jimmy Carter, Nixon, Eisenhower, Kennedy, wow. all on one big uh, illustration that was for, um, I can't remember the name of the magazine now, but they said, we're going to do an article about all the presidents up to this date. Uh, would I do that? And it was a real challenge, but that was what made the job fun because every illustration was something I'd never done before and uh, really kept me on my toes. Well, and there's a, a lot of research that would have to go into it, too. Yeah, I'm sure when you're doing. And in those days, you didn't have uh, you didn't have the, the Internet and Google to go searching yep. for images instantaneously. You had to keep a file or you had to have yeah. uh, newspapers or magazines, a stack of, of reference material to return to over and over again. Otherwise, boy, I remember I, for whatever project I might be doing, having to buy books about military hardware. If I was going to be doing, you know, something about the army or tanks or something like that, you had to go search it out. It wasn't easy, always easy to find the reference material you needed. So that's one thing. Did you ever get up to the Norman Rockwell Museum? I did. Uh, it was recently, too. We, uh, My wife and I drove up uh, to Niagara Falls and took our uh, young grandson. He was about seven or eight at the time. He's 14 now. But uh, on my bucket list, I wanted to go back down through Massachusetts and 
go to the Norman Rockwell Museum. So we did, and it was just a thrill to stand next to some of those paintings uh, that I'd seen in the magazines over the years. He was just a, an unbelievable, talented guy. Uh, I don't know how he did some of those things, as large as he did, too. Yeah, they're very, some of them are very big. There are a lot of people who disparaged Rockwell, uh, you know, years later, comparing him as one kind of art versus, say, abstract expressionism and abstraction and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. this, there's been a sort of a, a reversal of that, a revisionist kind of approach now where people look back at Rockwell and think differently. And one of the things that I teach a class called uh, Visual Narrative, which is really a storyboarding class, but it's also about just telling stories with pictures. And one of the things that I do right in the beginning of class is I show the students, um, I talk about how an illustration, a single image can tell a whole story and, yeah. and, and when it's really well done and well thought out. And so I show a Norman Rockwell painting to them, mm -hmm. to students who've probably never seen a Norman Rockwell, you know, or if yeah. they have, it's deep in their memory and they don't know who the artist was. And so I show them that and, and we go through this, this session where they, talk out the story that's being played out in the Rockwell. And what you find out is just a capable storyteller he really was and how very good he was at, at cluing his audience in to the story he wanted to tell. I know. That's true. That's what the, the job of the illustrator is, is to capture the imagination and the interest of the readers. Um, that's what I tell people. You know, they say, what does an illustrator do? Well, once I have read the assignment, um, then I have to figure out what image out of that whole story, one image, would be on a page when they open the magazine, the reader looks and sees the image that attracts their attention, and then they look at the title of the story, and they say, oh, I want to read that. Uh, well, if the illustration doesn't capture their attention, they just, you know, flip on by that, that page, um, and it that single image thing is embedded within me. And it had a lot to do with uh, working on Dennis later. Um, mm -hmm. But I was going to tell you also, speaking of going up to uh, the Rockwell Museum, when I was had just started out freelancing, I'd been in it a few years, the Illustrator's Workshop came into being and I had read all about it. It's three or four of the top illustrators in the country, the ones I just mentioned a while ago, Mark English and Bob Peake, and uh, who else was it I mentioned? Anyway, <laughs> my memory's failing me right now. But those illustrators will do a two-week workshop at uh, Marymount College in Terrytown, New York, mm -hmm. uh, every summer, and you can sign up for it. They only have like uh, 150 people that can come in and take the course. Uh, but you stay in the, the college dorm. And mm -hmm. then every day, the illustrators go from room to room looking at the assignment they gave you and making comments about how you could improve it. And I remember the assignment they gave us was uh, do an ad, a painting for an ad on depression what people deal with in depression. Well, before we went, I had to do research on that before we went up uh, to Marymount. Um, and I took pictures of this nice 
little old lady. I think she was in her late 80s when you were at church. And I said, would you let me take pictures of you sitting in a rocker and just kind of looking off to the side like you really don't know what's going on? And, and so I took lots of pictures and did do, I did the paintings from that reference I had. When you said gathering reference material, either in magazines or books, which I did a lot of, mainly I would go around and ask my neighbors or strangers to let me take pictures of them for an illustration I was working on. Uh, so I learned how to uh, manipulate. Uh, I would go up to somebody and say, I'm doing an illustration for this magazine. Would you let me take a picture of you like you're playing cards or doing something? And I said, I can't pay you, but I will give you a copy of the magazine when it comes out. And everybody was all for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> never had to, never had to pay anybody. But anyway, at the, the illustrator's workshop, then at the end of that two-week uh, event, each person that had signed in, um, some of them were professional artists, some of them were amateurs, uh, but you learn so much from those big professional guys because they're giving you secrets you didn't know about how they did texture and all this stuff with the paintings they were doing. Then we had to take our final painting up onto the stage in front of all of them, plus wow. the 150 other people there that signed up, and explain why we did this illustration the way we did. And then you would get a, a grade from the, the instructors. And I learned more in those two weeks than I did in four years at college. Wow. I mean, it was amazing. Well, so, yeah, when you're standing up in front of the best, right? Uh, I know. You know, they. it makes you nervous, but you're excited because they're getting to look at your work instead of you looking at their work. And they know from experience what works and what doesn't work. And they can right. give you suggestions. And it really did help me the rest of my freelance career. Um, does, does anything stand out from those sessions, like a lesson, a particular lesson that stuck out or stuck in your mind since then, or is it all kind of just a blur? Uh, well, it what stuck out was each one of those illustrators had a different personality, and uh -huh. they had a diff different style or technique. And I loved, when we went to Bob Peake's studio, he invited us there. And he was working on the movie posters for, um, I can't remember, it was a Marlon Brando movie. Uh, and he had the paintings he had already done sitting there in his studio. And he was explaining how he did this. And, and then to know that that was going to be in, in all the theaters as a movie mm -hmm. poster, uh, it was just amazing to be around him and see the materials that he used and um, but it just made me realize each person has a, a unique, um, uh, ability to do something and you're to explore that in your own way of doing it. If you have an assignment, don't copy somebody else's work, but you're influenced by how they did it. Uh, and yeah, it, it was just a really big help. To do that i'm glad that i was able to participate in that and one other thing about learning when i was younger mm -hmm. my parents never discouraged me from wanting to be an artist cartoonist or illustrator either one 
And when I was 14 years old, they knew that I wanted to take that art instruction incorporated correspondence course that was in all the magazines back then. It usually had a, a profile of a girl's face and underneath it, it would say, draw me and win a scholarship. Right. So I, I had sent that in and didn't win a scholarship, but one of their representatives came all the way to Lexington, North Carolina and talked to my parents and me and told them that your son really has an ability and he would really be rewarded by taking this course. It lasts about two years. Um, and they said, well, we're all for it. So they paid for me to take that course. And uh, it was illustration and cartooning. Uh, but every month they would send me a new uh, book, booklet, paperback. And you'd read one chapter about this kind of style. And at the end of the chapter, there would be an assignment. Now you draw what you just read about and you would send it to them up in Minneapolis and the professional illustrators that were on staff would critique your work and they would put a sheet of tracing paper over what you had done and they would show how they would have handled that situation and they mail it back to you. It was just an unbelievable experience. I'm so thankful my parents were willing to pay for that when I was 14 years old. Well, you, you, do you know who worked for Art Instruction? I know um, the other one what? was Famous Artist, and that was the one I think that Charles Schultz worked for. Yeah, well, no, um, Charles Schultz worked for Art Instruction okay. in Minneapolis. Well, yeah. yeah, okay, well, <laughs> I didn't ever get any of his comments on my work. <laughs> well, you never yeah. know. I, well, it, I suppose they assigned each one. I don't know if they revealed who it was that was. No, they, they didn't. No, they didn't. So I wouldn't have known. But so, that's amazing. <laughs> so what what year were let's see, what year are we talking about when you were 14? Not to when pin you down. 14, but Let's see. I was, that was in 56, I guess. 56, 57. I think he was still working there then. Yeah. I, I, he, he didn't, so. you know, he might have been. I can't remember exactly the dates. I know other people will know. He moved to California and he left uh, Art yeah. Instruction. And by that time, he'd won the Rubin, so things were happening. But oh, yeah. uh, I think he stayed working with Art Instruction until the mid-50s. So that's kind of, wow. What, yeah. what, that is, what a coincidence. Uh, you just made my day. Isn't that <laughs> something? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I thought about that. I'm wow. so surprised. But what do you know about that? Oh my gosh! Hmm. Well, it's cool. great to hear that that you found it uh, very helpful and uh, yeah. you know set you sent you on your way. Really? Yeah. Uh, well, what I cool. what I learned early in my life was never stop learning. Always experiment with any new style that you've never done before. If you don't like it, move away from it. But uh, yeah, like pen and ink. I used to. That was a real challenge for me. Drawing with a rapidograph pen now i use a croquil pen but mm -hmm. um but i was going to tell you how um my illustration career came to an end well i was gonna before we get to that though i, I and i want to talk about that too because it's that in and of itself is an incredible story 
But yeah. the one thing I wanted to comment about before we got that far was was in the when you were in your heyday as an illustrator, we're talking about tons of magazines that were being published at that time that were using illustration throughout their throughout the magazine. Uh, I remember growing up, you know, reading magazines my parents subscribed to. Whatnot. I remember Golf Digest. I probably saw a bunch of your illustrations because my dad subscribed to that magazine. Uh-huh. And so I saw a, a bunch of stuff in, in Golf Digest. But, you know, think I'm thinking about all of the magazines you, you mentioned and all of the ones you, you talked about. What a thriving publication industry. And to think that they were all using illustration, not photography at that time. Yeah, I know. Uh, that was amazing to me. Uh, I love to get magazines just to see whose illustrations were in them. And uh, you'd see some new guys coming along, uh, not meaning male, but male and female. <laughs> when right. I said uh, but they were willing to take a chance on any new artist uh, because they wanted to be right up to date with the latest technique and style. Sure. Um, so it was a real challenge, but I loved it. Um, and and I would give anything to go back and be able to talk with some of those art directors that were willing to take a chance on me living in Charlotte, North Carolina. And they were up in New York and uh, Chicago, California. Uh, I never did meet most of them. Um, wow. But I was so thankful that they were willing to take a chance on a guy from North Carolina to do an illustration. I think you're selling yourself short there. I have a feeling your portfolio (laughs) was pretty spectacular. But so you wanted to tell the story then about how your career in illustration came to an end. And I think that coincides with what happens in the publishing industry. So so how did that happen? Well, uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, computer graphics started becoming popular and uh, all the magazines wanted to be up to date with that. So I, the art director stopped calling me uh, to do illustrations because I didn't even own a computer at that time. And uh, they just wanted that slick graphic look that you can only get on the computer back then. So as my jobs, my assignments kind of dwindled away, uh, I really wondered what was going to happen because this was my career. I thought I was going to do it the rest of my life. Must have been Uh, frightening for for you and your your wife and your family. Yeah, it it really was because uh, I was making a good salary as a freelancer. Uh, a lot of things you have to do when you're freelancing. You have to set aside enough money to pay your quarterly taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to buy your own insurance. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of expenses people don't realize when you're working for a company. Uh, if you quit that job and you know went out on your own, you're responsible for all of that. But uh, anyway, yeah, as my my job kind of dwindled away, uh, my wife Kay at one point said, you're going to have to find a real job again, or we are going to lose our house. Mm -hmm. And I ended up working at Walmart. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't actually for Walmart. It was in their store. It was for a photo company that would take people's photos and turn them into a video. This was when videotape was just becoming popular. 
Uh And there were no CDs or DVDs back then. And so it was my job to let people come in, bring me a stack of photos. I would scan each one of them and then put them into a video with music and all that. That was what I did for about six or eight months. And I started questioning everything about my life and my career. And uh, I really wanted it. It was. Yeah. Uh, so, and you were uh, midlife by that time. We're talking I about just, I just turned 50 years old. Yeah. 50 years old. Yeah. So um, I, I'm, I'm a man of faith and I had uh, uh, gotten very discouraged at one point and I can remember praying this prayer and I said, Lord, I have trusted you with my life and look where it got me. I don't see any evidence of you working. And I'd like to know what's going on. Now, I know some people don't agree with uh, praying like that, but I think God wants you to be honest. And I'll tell you, it's unbelievable. The very next day after I went through that depressing time, I was sitting home alone watching TV. Kay was at her job as a bank teller. And I was watching channel surfing and a program came on and it was showing scenes from the new Dennis the Menace movie. And they said, the movie is premiering all over the country this week. And we're going to talk to the creator of Dennis, Hank Ketchum. And I thought, well, that'll be interesting. I've always liked Dennis the Menace, and I'd love to see what Hank Ketchum has to say. Well, in that interview, he said, I would love to find somebody to draw Dennis so I could travel and paint and write but I've got this daily deadline facing me. And after he said that, I watched the rest of the interview, but something just made me think, here is an opportunity. And so I went to the telephone and called my good friend, Jim Scancarelli, who has now been drawing Gasoline Alley for years, I think over 30 years. Uh, And they just just celebrated their 100th anniversary last year, I believe. That's right. Yeah, amazing. And I just thought, well, Jim's a member of the Cartoonist Society. Maybe he has Hank Ketchum's phone number. So when Jim answered, I said, Jim, do you have Hank Ketchum's phone number? He said, well, as a matter of fact, I do. I was at a Reuben uh, event with him, Reuben Wards, and he sat at a table close by. We had, had a conversation and I wanted a piece of his art and he wanted one of the Gasoline Alley and he gave me his phone number. So he gave me the phone number, and I dialed that number out in Monterey, and unbelievably, Mr. Ketchum answered the phone. (laughs) I thought a secretary or somebody would answer, but he answered. And I said, Mr. Ketchum, I'm an artist in Charlotte, North Carolina. I just saw you on TV, and you said you'd like to retire someday. And if you're serious about that, I would love to have the opportunity to draw Dennis. He said, well, send me some samples of your work and let me see what you do. So I put together a package of all of that um, Bob Hope cover and story illustrations, nothing like Dennis the Menace, and mailed it out to him. And a couple weeks later, I got a big white envelope in my mailbox with Dennis the Menace on the outside. I think my heart started beating a little faster and I opened it up and there was four typewritten pages from Mr. Ketchum. And he said, Marcus, I like your work. 
If you're serious about pursuing Dennis, show me how you would draw him in four different situations. And he gave me the little gag or caption to go by. I was just ecstatic. I couldn't <laughs> believe you. Hank Ketchum, one of the best cartoonists, most respected in the business, would take a chance on a total stranger he had never met 3,000 miles away. But if he was willing, I certainly was too. So I ran around to every bookstore that might have a dentist comic book or uh, and Hank said he had a new book that just came out, The, the Merchant of Dennis the Menace, that I might want to read. So I went and bought that and, and I did the, the four sketches mailed them out to him and very uh well, how would you describe when you're really nervous about waiting <laughs> on his reply yes um, anxious yeah yes i was um, hold on one second i had to throw my dog up in the window oh. <laughs> <laughs> he was she was sitting here looking at me like when are you going to put me in the window uh, so back <laughs> back back to what i was saying um so he he said he really liked my work. And if I was serious about pursuing Dennis, show him how I would ink those drawings I had sent him. He had when I opened that package up, he had crossed out everything I had sent him, all the Dennis drawings, and he had put a sheet of tracing paper over it and in pencil he had redrawn to show me how to change it to look like his style. Talk about Art Instruction Incorporated. When wow. I was 14, it really brought back memories of that's what I learned when I was 14. Let the, the expert look at your work and then show you how they would have done it. So anyway, to make a long story short, he agreed to train me to take over drawing the Monday through Saturday daily panels uh, when he would retire. And, you know, Ron Ferdinand has mm -hmm. been drawing the Sunday dentist since 1982. Wow, he, I didn't know that. Yeah, he's been around a long time, and he's 11 years younger than me. Uh, wow. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and then Mr. Ketchum invited, well, I would send him my ideas after he sent a gag. I would fax them to him. He would fax them right back, and he would draw over them, or he would say, this is good, or I don't like this. He was very bluntly honest, and I'm thankful he was. He had a great sense of humor, too. Um, and uh, so anyway, I was going to tell you, after I started doing the panels some, you have to work six to eight weeks ahead. So right. the, the panel that comes out today, I did a long time ago. I don't even remember what I did. <laughs> but one day I was opening our Charlotte paper and looking at the comics, and there was Dennis that I had drawn. And my goodness, I had left the freckles off on Dennis. Five freckles on one cheek and three on the other. I could not believe I did that. Oh, it really stressed me out. So I faxed it, the copy out of the paper to Mr. Ketchum. I knew he was three hours behind me. And I said, Mr. Ketchum, I'm afraid I made a capital offense in Denniston. Uh, I left his freckles off in today's panel. And I am so sorry. So I waited and waited. 
About three hours later, the fax machine came on. I ran over and grabbed it, and he had sent it back and said, don't worry about it. Just give him twice as many tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, well, at least he's got a sense of humor. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Yeah, I'll never forget that. Well, now, uh, what I've heard about Hank Ketchum is that he was a very stern taskmaster. When it came to his assistance, he had very clear ideas of what he wanted and was very, as you've just said, very forthright about getting what he wanted. Right. He was. And there are times I I could show you right now. I've gone through my files. I keep everything I've done for the last, what, how many years? (laughs) 26 years. Uh Uh, I keep a, a different file folder for each week. So I can go back and look at my drawings if I need to, or when I'm gone, maybe my, my family might appreciate them. I don't know. They'll probably put them on eBay or something. Uh, but anyway, um, what I really liked about Hank being so honest was his sense of humor. And, um, I did. Uh Oh, that's okay. (laughs) We love dogs. Yeah. Manny, what are you barking at? Hey listeners, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I hope you're enjoying today's interview. If you are and you want to show support, head on over to my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. At Patreon, you can contribute as little as a dollar on a regular basis to ensure the longevity of this podcast. Your support will help keep it commercial free and free to the listening public. And in exchange, you'll get some pretty neat stuff. There are at least three different tiers. Each level offers its own distinct rewards. So check it out today at patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Any amount is welcome and your support is greatly appreciated. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. Thanks again. And now back to the interview. But I would make a mistake, and uh, I knew I had to get Mr. Ketchum's approval before I could send them to uh, Reed Brennan, uh, who prints up the proof sheets every every couple of weeks. Um, There was one panel I was working on, and it was Dennis and his buddy Joey sitting in the sandbox playing, you know, and Dennis's cat, whose name is Hot Dog, is standing over on the other side uh, you know, kind of digging. And Dennis says, I love my sandbox, but hot dog really loves my sandbox. (laughs) So I did the drawing. I faxed it to him and, uh, Hank sent back and he said, Marcus, you don't know how to draw cats, do you? And I said, I faxed back and said, well, we have two cats. I, I think I know. He said, well, you need to study it. And so I redrew the cat. And so I sent it back to him and he sent it back again. And he said, you're still not doing this right. He didn't show me anything. And I waited and all of a sudden a fax came through. He had taken a, 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 a stat or a fax out of a Brit, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, and it was the skeleton of a cat. And he just sent it back to me with no explanation. 
So with my little sense of humor, I redrew Hot Hot Dog as a skeleton cat in the sandbox <laughs> and sent it back to him and regretted that I had done it after the facts went out. I thought, oh, no, I hope he doesn't take that wrong. And he sends back a sketch of him at the drawing board, and he's a skeleton. And he said, if you, if you had done it right the first time, I wouldn't look like this. <laughs> oh, that was so funny. He yeah. put as much, he could have redrawn it himself for all the time yeah. he took criticizing he that. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that, but he, he wanted to be sure when he turned it all over to me to do and he wouldn't be involved in the drawing, that I had better be dependable to do it the best I possibly could. So how long did you work under his tutelage like that? I mean, when was it eventually, when did he eventually let go of the reins? Okay, well, in 94, I called him in, in uh, um, June, what was it? Yeah, June the 22nd, many, June the 22nd, 1993 was when I called him after seeing mm -hmm. him on TV. And a year later, in July of 94, he was going to make his official announcement of retirement to okay. King Features. And so he flew me up and Ron, who was visiting his parents in uh, upstate New York somewhere. Uh, or it might have been right there in Brooklyn. I don't remember. Anyway, he just drove over and Hank met us at King Features, where he went and talked to the bosses. We had lunch at the Palm Restaurant, and uh, Hank showed us all the cartoon drawings on the wall, which was amazing. But after he made that announcement uh, that Ron would continue doing the Sunday page and I would be taking over the Monday through Saturday panels, um, Ron went on back up to his parents. Um, my flight was a few hours later, so Hank said, why don't you come up to my hotel room since we don't see each other in person very often. We can just have a, a little chat. So I went rode with him in a cab up to Park Avenue to his hotel, and we were up there having a conversation, very straightforward, and I said, Mr. Ketchum, what made you decide I was the person you were going to send this opportunity to, uh, or give this opportunity to? He said, well, Marcus, you were the only person that responded to that television interview. Huh. <laughs> Wow, are you kidding me? <laughs> so all the way back to Charlotte on the plane, I'm thinking he could have just put up a, a little note card at Disney Studios where he worked back in 38 through 42, I think, uh, as an animator. He could have put a note card up at Disney saying, I'm going to retire. Would anybody like to draw Dennis? And he would have been bombarded by cartoonists wanting that job. Sure. Instead, instead, he had one illustrator from Charlotte, North Carolina, that just happened to call him at the right time. That yeah. amazed me that it all just kind of fit together. Some things are, you know, I know it sounds a little hokey, but some things are meant to be right and right they place, are. right time yep. is a right big place, part right of time. Yep, it's a big part of what leads to success in this, that, or the other thing. I think too often we we sort of, I guess, in our enthusiasm for the idea of meritocracy, we forget the idea that part of talent is also, you know, this is inexplicable part that 
of being, first of all, putting yourself forward in that way, having the confidence and have the, having the chutzpah and having the, you know, the motivation to do that. That's, that's the first step. And then the second step is, is following through. And then the third step is being prepared, right? They say, what, what is it? Um, it's, you've got to, you've got to have the, you have to have done all of the hard work before those opportunities, you know, become available to you, even, you know, and, and you did, you had this whole backlog of whole career that was very diverse. And certainly when, it, when he saw what you could do, he said, this guy can do almost anything. I'm sure he can adapt to what I've got him, I need him to do. Well, I, amazing. I'm, yeah. I, um, Mr. Ketchum flew, uh, Kay and me out there to meet him. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, he met us at the airport in Monterey and even offered to carry my luggage. I couldn't believe he did that. But uh, he had rented a car for us and he had his little sport car. He said, follow me. I'm going to show you where you're going to be spending a couple of days uh, at Carmel at a bed breakfast inn. And so we followed him down there and he drove around by the beach and then went back to the uh, bed and breakfast inn. And um, when we got out of the cars, we were unloading the luggage. And he said his wife, Roland, had picked this place out for us to stay. And Kay can shop or do whatever she wants to. And he said, I want you to come into the office at 8.30 in the next few mornings. And we will just work together and all that with Ron. And at the time, Karen Machette was also doing the Sunday page with Ron. Uh, and Dottie was the, uh, the secretary. But uh, anyway, as we stood out there, Kay went into the, the bed and breakfast to start getting stuff ready, and Hank wanted me to stay out there and talk with him. And he said, um, now one thing I want you to know, you have got to have fun while you're drawing, because if you have fun, the reader will pick up on it. If it mm-hmm. stops being fun, they'll pick up on that, and they'll stop reading your strip. Wow. Uh, now I thought, I've never forgotten that. And he said, uh, another thing, every uh, gag, he said the Sunday page and the daily panel are two different animals. That's why he said, I want you doing the, the panels and Ron's going to continue doing the Sunday page. The Sunday page is in color, has six to eight panels and talk balloons to get the point across. You have mm-hmm. one image to tell a complete story of that gag, and you don't have color to work with because this was before they started colorizing the dailies. And I thought that was a good story too, because as you had said a while ago, the fact that I had had that experience in illustrating to take a manuscript and do a painting that would capture people's interest. That's what Dennis is. When they open exactly. the newspaper and see all these comics, if they see one panel that captures their attention, Hank said, you got 10 seconds of the reader's time. They'll look at the image if it's good. Then they'll look at the gag to see how it relates to that image and look back at it, and then they move on. So yeah. that's your job. And he was so right. Uh, he knew exactly what he was talking about. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it's very much a 
part and parcel of the 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 kind of illustrations that you were doing you know uh yeah. capture that story in a single image and and as a matter of fact i have to tell you this i told you before that I, when i introduced my visual narrative class i put up a, a norman rockwell right yeah. well right. the second image that i put up on the screen you're not going to believe this and i'm not making this up it's a dennis the menace image oh, and uh-huh. It's likely, I'm not sure exactly the year, but it's a more recent one. So I'm sure it's one of yours. So, be. you know, it's, it's, it just goes to show how well you've, you accomplished that task. I, it, it was a job, believe me, but it was a, a wonderful job. And I'm so thankful I've had the opportunity and that, that Hank was willing to take a chance on me. And Mrs. Ketchum now is keeping me on the dentist team and, when you said it might have been one of my drawings, in the last uh, about six or eight months, I've had some help uh, mm-hmm. with Hank's son, Scott uh, Ketchum. He's a oh. talented artist, and he's now on staff with the dentist team. And wow. Ron does the Sunday page, but once in a while, he will pitch in and do a daily panel for me. I'll send him a gag. And, and so a couple months ago, we were planning to take a trip out to California before all this uh, virus mm-hmm. thing came about. We had already reserved a, a flight, the tickets on the flight, and uh, I needed to be another couple of weeks ahead. So I asked Scott and Ron, if I send you some gags, would you do some daily panels and I will insert them as I need them? And they did. So some of the ones that they did back then are now showing up. So. Oh. Uh, you you can look Scott signs his as S Ketchum and the other one you would see Ferdinand, uh, but right. uh, Scott is also uh, helping to edit the gags. We have oh. uh, fifteen about fifteen writers that send us their ideas every month, and uh, so he's going through and selecting the ones that he thinks will work, and then he he sends them to me. And so it goes on, right? The business goes on, and it's a, it's, a, it's kind of yeah. cool. It's a family business. But yeah. uh, back in the day, when you first started, and you started mm-hmm. taking over for Hank Ketchum, was he writing the gags, or was he relying on people to feed the gags to him? He told me that uh, when he started doing Dennis, he knew he would run out of fresh ideas if he were doing it over and over. So he started using professional writers out in California, and I was told that a couple of his writers were the same writers that wrote for Bob Hope and also oh. for, John, for Johnny Carson. Uh, oh, my that, gosh. <laughs> yeah, that's how they made their living, was write jokes for these people and also for cartoons. Sure. So, um, yeah, he would send me the the batch of gags from all the different writers, and they're on little three-by-five sheets with the writer's name and a code number so that uh, the secretary or um, business associate working there, uh, her name is Lisa now, uh, and uh, when I finish a week of six panels, I just write the gag number on the back of the the artwork and Mm -hmm. the writer's name. That way they can be paid every quarter from how many we have used of their particular gags. Um, so once in a while, we'll make up our own gags. Ron does, and uh, Scott's made up some, and mm-hmm. once in a while, I'll do it. 
uh, but I'm more into the drawing than making up the the jokes. Right. Um, what I'm I'm curious as to what were some of the things that um, Hank Ketchum identified as attributes of his style that he wanted you to pick up on. Um, you know, things that you might not have been doing that he wanted you to do. I mean, he had a very clear idea of what he wanted his his comics to look like. So what were some of those things that he was he was, you know, indicating that were important to him about your style? Okay, he uh, indicated to me that he wanted the thick and thin line ink line work that you get by using a Gelat 170 pen nib. And he had been using those his whole career. And he gave me a few of those. And I had to order some when I got back uh, to Charlotte. But uh, he showed me when I was out there that time, uh, looking over his shoulder, how he would do a light pencil sketch first. And then he would put that sketch on a light table and put the sheet of Bristol board, two-ply Bristol board, on top of his sketch. And then he could see what he had sketched, he got his ink pen and dip it in the ink well. He didn't use, uh, you know, a pintail or felt tip pick, uh, pen or anything like that. He did the old fashioned way and insisted that I do it that way too. So I had to learn how to use a Gelat 170 pen point, which I'm still using, but I also use a chisel point marker once in a while to do the thicker lines and fill in the black spaces and all instead of using India ink and painting it with a brush. But Mm -hmm. it was a real learning experience. uh, And he let me watch him do that. And he even made a mistake in the ink inking. And uh, he said, that's why I have white out. Uh (laughs) He reached around and got it and painted over his mistake. I have made so many mistakes. What? I didn't have enough whiteout to cover it. A lot of times I'll just tear up the panel and start completely over because I needed a fresh approach rather than just painting over something I did wrong. Like if I get Alice's face wrong or, um, you know, Henry's uh, shape of his arms wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I will glue over uh, a mistake if I can just redraw it quickly on the thin Bristol paper and cut it out. Nobody even sees that the the change was made. But uh, just seeing him work and realize he makes mistakes and wasn't afraid to admit it and showed me how he corrected it. Yeah. And when you make a mistake, is it because you feel it doesn't look enough like the models that Hank Ketchum set forth? It doesn't look enough like Hank Ketchum's style is, yeah. or is it something else? No, that's, that's it. I, I, I go through his, uh, old paperback books of Dennis daily panels frequently, just looking at the different composition he used. He is, a was a master of composing his drawings, getting the figures at the right place, the, the background, um, images and all that. Uh, and I do a lot of reference work too. If, if I'm going to draw Dennis at a shopping center. Um, Sometimes I'll go to a mall and just take my camera and take some shots of what the front of the buildings look like and all that, instead of just making it up out of my head. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, yeah, it is a real challenge. And I was going to tell you about um, 
some other things that uh, were funny. Please uh, do. While I was, <laughs> yeah, while I was there, I was working at one of the desks, the the light tables. In fact, he took that light table apart and sent it to me here in Charlotte, and it came in three different packages and three different trucks. And I had to get, get some young people that knew how to put it together. And two guys that were doing my yard work came in and they put my drawing table together for me. Uh, but uh, anyway, I was when I was there working and Ron was in his studio room doing the Sunday page and um, Hank would come out and look at what I was doing. And he noticed that I had uh, put a notch in the upper right corner of the border and of, of the, the panel, he said, you don't do that. That's <laughs> my trademark. And I said, oh, I thought I had to do everything exactly like you were doing it. He said, no, you draw that border straight across. Don't put a notch in it. <laughs> so it's funny, later on, when he was inserting some of my panels Along with his, my family and friends could always tell, even if it didn't have my name on it, if there was no notch in that upper right-hand corner, that was one I had drawn. And that was fine with Mr. Ketchum. He didn't care. Um, but also, while I was there, before he invited Kay and me to go eat dinner with him and his wife, Roland, up in Pebble Beach, which was a thrill, um, I was drawing away on one little panel, and it had Henry, the daddy, and Dennis talking about something. Hank comes out and looks at, over my shoulder, and he said, I also had uh, gotten some reference out of Hank's files uh, so I would know how to draw the characters. He came over, and I had that the panel laying there in front of me, and he said, no, you have made Hank's nose too long. That's not the way Hank's nose looked. And I think, hmm, I don't know if I should tell him this. I said, but that's not my drawing. That's yours. <laughs> ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> so he said, you're kidding me. I said, no, it's one I borrowed. See the notch in the upper right-hand corner. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> so he had invited me home to his home to have dinner with him and Roland and Kay and I were, were over there and we were sitting in the, the den just having a good discussion and I didn't know how Hank was going to ever get over that and he says to Roland you would not believe what Marcus did to me today he <laughs> said <laughs> he was using one of my drawings to to look at and I came out and told him that the nose was too long on Henry's face and he told me it was my drawing can you believe that? And Roland just laughed. <laughs> so he, <laughs> he got his taste of his own medicine. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, but that but was fun. I was I was thinking, you know, uh, it's interesting to me because I've always heard little stories about Hank Ketchum from a distance, you know, reading uh -huh. this thing or that thing, and that Hank Ketchum was very much a businessman and he looked at Dennis the Menace as a vehicle for creating a living, uh, making a career and it became a business property. But when you describe him and the way you talk about him, it sounds like he was 
detail obsessed down to the last little mark and little line in the on the comic so that he was he was while he may have put forward this idea that he was just a businessman in a sense and a cartoonist who did this but it was a media property for him it comes across as a guy who is deeply obsessed with every detail about the work he puts out that's got his name on it you know, he sounds as obsessed as any any really obsessed artist is. <laughs> yeah, I guess all artists are that way with their creation. And, and he definitely wanted to be sure I was carrying on his style. And people wouldn't look at it and say, oh, that's, that's not Dennis the Menace. Um, so that's why I tried my best to do what he told. And I appreciated that he was like that. Um, he... Um, when he did actually pull away from doing the dailies, it was about a year later. Um, he had been inserting some of mine, but then he turned everything over to me. And, and that was a big thing to do. I'm, I was kind of scared about that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I even had this feeling I worked out of a studio in a, a little cabin behind our house back when I was, first doing Dennis. Now we've moved. I'm in a bonus room upstairs, this house. But uh, going back down to my studio, I would be thinking about, oh, I've got to get six panels done. And I've already done a situation like this one. And in my mind, I got this closed in feeling like you're going to be doing these for years to come. And you can't be repeating yourself Everyone has to be, even if you're showing Dennis sitting in the corner being punished, you don't draw the exact same viewpoint you did before. And my, my mind told me, uh, and I think Hank had kind of mentioned it before to me, and it stayed in my head, you are the director. You have these characters. All the cartoon characters are your actors. When you think of a scene... And you're going to put those actors there. You put them where you think it will work best when you're drawing. You put Dennis here and his mom over here or Mr. Wilson here and Margaret and all that. And don't be happy with your first sketch. Don't ever be satisfied with your first sketch. Think about it. What would it look like if you're the director, if you moved the camera around to another angle and looked at the same scene where would those characters be? How would that work? Would it tell the story better than what you just did? And I never forgot that. And I keep it in my head now when I'm working on a similar scene from a year ago. I don't want people to say, oh, they're just copying the one they did because we don't. Uh, mm-hmm. But I just want to be sure I've looked at it from every angle that might be better than the one I did before. And mm-hmm. that was a good good lesson I learned from from Hank. Now, so did he then draw the daily comic strip all the way from its inception in the fifties to when he handed it over to you, or did were there other assistants involved? Do you know? I mean, the, I know he had assistants in the studio. I know about Al Wiseman. I know about you know uh, Fred Tool working on the comic books and Owen Fitzgerald. Um, those guys. Um, do you, do you know if they did any of the dailies, um, for him or was he always the the main artist? Well, he did the bulk of them, but 
there are some that I've seen in some of the, the books that are printed from back mm -hmm. in the, the 60s and uh, early 70s that uh, they didn't have a notch in the upper right corner. <laughs> okay. And I, I knew, I can't remember some of the artist's names, but I think Bob Bug, B-U-G-G, was, uh -huh. was one that worked on the dailies and uh, some others. Ron Ferdinand would be a perfect person to talk to about a lot of the history because he was there for so long and got to know all the other artists that, that worked with Hank. Oh, and okay. I, I'm, I think you need to give him a call. He would probably love to do this. Oh, uh, I would love to have him sure. Yeah, but uh, he is so smart. I am amazed at uh, all that he remembers from when Hank was actually doing it or when uh, Ron would do a few of the daily panels himself. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, well, Hank was uh, really a perfectionist in his drawing. And as he got older, I look at some of the drawings and I noticed he did get a simpler composition. Because mm -hmm. some of the ones he did earlier, I mean, the detail is unbelievable. Uh, the black black uh, section with cross hatching and, mm -hmm. and all of that. But then when he was training me, he said I was overdrawing. He said, you need to simplify. In fact, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> he had sent back one of my faxes one day when he was training me over the fax machine. And uh, it said... K-I-S-S -S on it. And I didn't know what that meant. And I showed it to my wife and she said, that means keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, that's what he meant by that. Keep it simple. And, and that is K-I-S-S -S with a period after each of the letters. Well, um, I will have to say that that does sound like something that probably happened in his style as part of the evolution of newspapers and how the comics on the page began to shrink. I mean, back in the fifties, when he started, think about yeah. all the comics that were on the page then and how detailed they were. Um, they were bigger too. And I imagine as time has gone on, not only his competition, but also the room on the page got smaller. Yeah. So, yeah. I so know. we had to change it. I agree. And he knew you've got to get a message across in that one glance that somebody looks at that, uh, panel and if you've got it cluttered up with all this other stuff you're going to distract them from the gag um, yeah. and uh, yeah you're right when he retired and he left the strip in your hands did he did you ever hear from him about the dailies oh, after that yes he uh, he would fax me occasionally and um, I still would send them to him and he oh. said, yeah, these, these are fine. I always faxed him. In fact, now, uh, every week when I come up with six sketches, I usually do that on Sunday afternoon, uh, pull out the six gags I want to illustrate. Mm -hmm. And unless I'm giving one or two to Scott or Ron, but then I, I make a copy of my six panels and the gags and fax them or email them to Mrs. Ketchum and Scott. And mm -hmm. both of them have a say-so. Sometimes Mrs. Ketchum will say, well, I like the drawings, but I don't understand how that gag relates to this. Or she'll make uh -huh. a, a good comment about it. And I'll, 
and then Scott, a lot of times will change the gags or maybe something in a drawing that he said, well, if you move this figure here, I think it would fit better with the picture. So uh, even with Hank gone, we're still a team um, making decisions on what works and what doesn't work. Well, it's fascinating. It's really interesting keeping his involvement through the family. It's really, uh, yeah. yeah, there's something nice about it too. That I don't know. I just find it find it kind of nice to know that. I, I think in your conversations with him, you know, say informal conversations uh, that weren't so much maybe dentist related. Did you ever talk about comics or comic strips? The, the you know the other comic strips that were out his his peers and and uh, whatnot, um, you know, yeah. colleagues during during that. Did you ever talk about comics? Not that I remember, really. But uh, talking about um, Schultz and mm-hmm. being a colleague of, of Hank, uh, Sparky as he called him, um, I just saw in his book yesterday, I was trying to, I knew you wanted me to say something about Charles Schultz and Peanuts. And, <laughs> and I always, I, I always loved the Peanuts comic strip. And it's because it was simple. You sure. know, that, that's what I liked about it was the simplicity of the characters. And they were, they related to each other so well. And uh, everybody liked that. That's why Peanuts was so popular. Mm-hmm. But uh, Hank had written about in his book about the Merchant of Dennis the Menace, um, he and Sparky were playing on the same foursome of golf at the uh, Pebble Beach uh, Pro-Am tournament in 1989. And he had a picture of them playing. um, And he said, when they were standing around talking, uh, Sparky came over and said, you ever think about quitting and Hank said, no, I've been playing golf since I was nine and a half <laughs> years old. And I'm going to play it till I work this, get this thing figured out. And said, uh, Sparky laughs at him, said, I don't mean golf. I meant cartooning. Do you ever think about retiring? And <laughs> Hank said, I had to collect my thoughts for a minute. And then I said, retirement has never entered my mind training a couple of talented assistants and working fewer hours might be attractive, but I don't plan to join the rocking chair Metamucil club. And (laughs) another thing, old cartoonists never die. They just slowly erase themselves. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. But he said he and, and, uh, Charles Schultz or Sparky had a good relationship and respect for each other. Mm-hmm. They were doing very different things, yeah, uh, in their comics. You know, I mean, very different things, and uh, part of that had to do with the fact that Hank Ketchum's work was one panel, or you know, two panels at the most, if it was you know yeah. split up. But, but uh, and and Charles Schultz had uh, that four-panel playground to 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 work in. But their their temperaments in terms of what they were after, I think, was was very different. I mean, I mean, do you think that Ketchum saw Dennis primarily as entertainment for an audience? Mm, I'd never thought of it that way. <laughs> well, it's uh, interesting because I, I I think Schultz began to think that, you know, Peanuts was 
I don't know that he ever got it into his mind that Peanuts was more than entertainment, but somehow or another, that's where he went, you know? Um, uh-huh. And Dennis has always been, uh, as much as I love it as uh, a continuing comic, and uh, and I love the artwork, and in particular, I think the artwork is just superb and has always been that way. Um it, it seems to be geared more about, you know, because it's one panel or two panels at the most, mm-hmm. it's more about getting that joke across, you know, um, giving you the laugh for the day than it is about really exploring psychology, for example. Yeah, there are some some of the gags that are kind of psychological. Uh, but I think what Hank wanted to do, since Dennis was based on his own son and his wife and himself when he first started it mm-hmm. was keep it where everybody could relate to one of those characters mm-hmm. you've always everybody's been a five and a half year old at one time or another and and you're either a parent or you've had parents and and he wanted the situations to be something everybody that reads it could relate to that oh yeah i was like that when I was a kid or mm-hmm. my parents did this for me or I'm a parent and I would not let my kid get away with that. And, uh, you know, we get comments now. Uh, that's how people critique it is, uh, Mr. Wilson, uh, he's a little old to be doing this or uh, <laughs> they they see him as real people yeah. that they can relate to. And that, I think that's what Hank wanted was, the reader relating to the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, how has Dennis changed? Do you think even in the years that you've been doing it, um, uh, you know, since the nineties, I mean, a lot has happened. A lot has changed in terms of the culture. Uh, a, a lot in terms of parenting has changed in our ideas about yeah. raising kids. So, you know, how do you, th- has Dennis evolved over that period of time? Um, you know, and it's certainly, it must have evolved right since the fifties too. But, but I, you know, have you seen changes in the character or at least in the way, as you're just talking about the audience in the way the audience relates to the comic? Yes. Uh, because I, I read some of the comments, uh, every day on the comics kingdom site where each of the, the comics, uh, that they have, uh, they have a blog where people can talk about, that day's strip or panel and a lot of them have said something about why why does dennis constantly wear those overalls <laughs> uh that's you know that's not in style anymore or wow, um, yeah. there was other things that they mentioned like he would never he's five and a half years old he would never have said a word like that and and then i think i wish you'd just take it as the joke that it is and not get so involved in whether this should have been done or not. But I I do know that Dennis was always in his cowboy outfit when he was growing up. And now if we did that again, people say cowboy movies are Dennis wouldn't even watch a cowboy movie nowadays. He Mm -hmm. he's into space and stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. uh, so we're trying to be a little bit current but mm-hmm. keeping the style that Hank established the characters as, um, I know there we got some complaints about uh, Dennis's relationship with Margaret. Uh, oh. some, 
some lady wrote in and said, uh, I'm canceling my subscription to such and such newspaper because I do not like the bullying attitude that Dennis has toward Margaret. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so then we're thinking, well, we can't even have fun with a little kid, uh, two kids, and uh, having that kind of relationship where the little boy doesn't want anything to do with the little girl. It's not right. bullying, it's just reacting right, in a right. boy-girl way, the way we grew up. But uh, I can understand their concern. Well, uh, I, I guess this is where I, I, I find, I take issue with some of the moralizing in re- relationship to, certainly in relationship to comic strips and fictional characters, you know, this idea yeah. that every character has to be you know uh, a, a figure of uh, you know representing contemporary values in this way or another way that they they relate more as symbols you know rather than as figures that people are looking to them to represent you know current modes of thought regarding this issue or that issue you know it, it doesn't seem to affect television programs where you have all kinds of reprehensible characters doing reprehensible things. But in the comics page, uh, particularly in the newspapers, you know, it seems as though the audience really takes exception, at least in some regard. And they expect, okay, you know, whatever um, attitude we have about this, that, or the other thing, whether it's, you know, gender relationships or not, we expect them to be born out in Dennis the Menace and Margaret. And, um, you know, I mean, on the one hand, yeah, the strip has to change with time, and that's true, and reflect reflect contemporary mores in one way or another. But at the same time, yeah. children behave the way they behave, and yeah, true. Yeah. you know, so there's nothing wrong with being honest. I always had I, I had a lot of resentment as I was a kid with those PTA organizations who used to get involved with children's entertainment and children's TV. They ruined a lot of really terrific animated programs in yeah. the six, late sixties and seventies with those attitudes, you know, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> I do. Yeah. Well, there is such a variety now in the comic strips. There are characters that are very edgy and current. Mm-hmm. And if that's what people want to read, that's why it's there. There, I would say most of the people who still read Dennis the Menace are not in the younger generation who mm-hmm. didn't grow up with him like I did. And some of, I know you didn't grow all the way up with him, but you're younger than I am. But um, they were familiar with Dennis the Menace and the movie and the TV show. And um, so I think 45 up through the old age people are the ones that still read Dennis the Menace Mm -hmm. and expect it to be the same kind of mentality it was when they always enjoyed it before. Yeah. It's a toss up. We have to be a little bit sensitive to the current trends. And we also have to think some of our strongest supporters are going to stop reading Dennis if he becomes something Hank didn't create him to be. Well, I tell you, uh, and that's a very fine line to walk and a difficult line to walk. And uh, I'll tell you, I'm okay. So without giving away too much, (laughs) I'm 60. (laughs) I'll be 60 in two in in a month. I'll be 60. So 
Um, I, you know, <laughs> but Dennis is is deep in my you know cultural memory. And yeah. if Dennis if Dennis stopped wearing overalls, <laughs> I think I would be upset. <laughs> I know, yeah. That's you know, how you identify you identify him by what he's got on, just like uh, Charlie Brown. I know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've never known a kid to wear a striped shirt like Charlie Brown. There's there's something <laughs> you know anxiety ridden in all of those little jagged lines. But you know, I mean, I expect to see Dennis as Hank Ketchum originally envisioned him and i know you know you bring your own flair to it uh but at the same time it's in the spirit of that and and i know it's terrible to to think things should be preserved in amber like that but at the same time i i want i gee i don't want dennis to change you know Uh, i still (laughs) want him to be a little hell on wheels you know yeah i think that's what hank would want too yeah you know so (laughs) so so <laughs> so that's a difficult thing to do. But so among the greatest comic books that I have in my collection are some early Dennis comic books. And I have uh-huh. I have to say that the, you know and I know Hank Ketchum oversaw the production of those. Those are some of the funniest comic books I I I've ever read. The ones um printed by I think it was by Fawcett and Dell and they were done mm-hmm. by Al Wiseman and Fred Toole was the writer. They're just some right. of the funniest things. Uh, you, you know, I've ever read, and in all of those, you know, Dennis wreaks havoc everywhere he goes. Have yeah. you found that um, that you know that Dennis wreaking havoc in that in that way has that caused any problems in in today's environment? Somewhat, and we try to keep him from doing physical things, you know, that could be seen the wrong way. Um, I know that uh, years ago, um, Dennis came on uh, originally with a slingshot in his back pocket and would use it for whatever he wanted to do, you know, and he could use it for some things we would not allow him to use it for today. But now with all the uh, concealed and carried and all that stuff with weapons going on, they actually stopped... uh, us from having Dennis with a slingshot. Okay. I didn't realize there was an ordinance out in California that uh, you could not have slingshots. I don't know who told me that, but um, so we hmm. don't have him shooting a slingshot like he used to. I did use him uh, one day recently when Dennis was at a bowling alley and he was using his slingshot to knock down that last pin mm-hmm. um oh. we, we haven't gotten any comments about that <laughs> well yeah shooting inanimate objects uh i suppose yeah, yeah is a whole different thing than shooting at birds and things like i i think he probably did in yeah. the early days yeah right. uh and yeah even, uh, even an um like uh, a nerf gun uh, okay or uh, a water gun that looks like a machine gun uh, mm-hmm. we can, I hesitate to use something like that. Even if we have a gag related to that, I know how it would be taken, uh, by today's critics and mm-hmm. we'd just as soon not start something like that. Yeah, um, I can, I can understand <laughs> it. Yeah. Yeah. So did you have any, uh, favorite comics? I know you mentioned some of them, but as years you know, went on and, and you, your illustration career yeah. took off. 
did you stay in touch with comics? Did you continue to read the comics at all? Is, yeah. Uh, I went on. Uh, right. Uh, I always like for better or for worse. Oh yeah. Okay. Relate to that. Um, and peanuts, of course. And, um, Let's see, what were some of the... Right now, my favorite is Pickles. Um, oh, sure. <laughs> because I can relate to those old guys, old people, couple sitting around making comments like that. In fact, it looks like it could have been a Mr. and Ms. Wilson comic strip takeoff. Uh, they would have fit really well with those. Um, but when I was younger, what got me interested in illustration, too, was Prince Valiant. I oh. loved that artwork. I could not believe that was the only comic strip in the paper that was so well drawn and illustrated. It didn't even look like a comic strip. It looked like an illustration. Uh, yeah. So I always respected Hal Foster and his artwork. Um, and what else did I... Oh, Little Abner. I, okay. That was my other favorite. Every day I would read Little Abner. I just loved the way... Al Cap drew the characters and uh, and Snuffy Smith and okay. one of my closest friends right now is John Rose who has taken over Snuffy and is doing a fantastic job of capturing the original look that Fred Laswell uh, was the last cartoonist that did it and turned it over to John but uh, John just has a great uh, imagination about how to use the characters in hoot and holler and and uh it's just he's really good i like he's writing he's, it as well i think he does yeah okay uh, great. great he would be another good one to interview believe oh. me he would love, um and i'll give you that information uh, oh great yeah i'll we'll email <laughs> <laughs> yeah we will yeah okay. uh, i was trying to think of other comics that uh, we don't take the newspaper anymore because I can go online and look up every comic book, uh, comic strip, uh, and the different syndicates and all that. And the newspapers had gotten to where there were more advertisements than there were really oh, real news. And I hate to say that, but a lot of that, uh, they've been bought by bigger companies that uh, are using advertisements to sell to make a living, I guess. Well, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, you pick up a Sunday a Sunday paper now, and and you know yeah. it's ninety percent ads and and half a percent comics page. You know, there's hardly uh -huh. anything there. Yeah. And, uh, I think they're shoot they've been shooting themselves in the, their own foot for a long time in that way, um, yeah. because you know the comics in the sports section were always the things that sold the newspaper. Yeah. And, specifically particularly on sunday and, and yep. so how long do you see yourself do you ever see yourself retiring from uh, what, what was it hank said the cartoonists never retire they just mm -hmm. erase themselves <laughs> <laughs> that's a great uh, line yeah. well i uh i'm at the age where the daily deadlines, and I can relate to Hank when he was saying that in that interview, because I know what that's like. When you have deadlines, sometimes it takes the joy out of doing artwork, because I've always thought the difference between fine arts and commercial art, mm -hmm. commercial art, 
you have a deadline you have to meet. Fine yeah. arts, you paint when you feel like it mm-hmm. a lot of times. And you put more of your personal feelings into fine art. But mm-hmm. when you're doing commercial uh, cartoons that have to be done by a certain time, you, you've got a deadline. And, whoa, if I don't even feel like drawing, I've got to do it anyway. But, uh, no, I still love doing it, but I'm at that point where I would really like to have a little less stress, uh, you know, not having to do six panels every week. And that's why Ron and and Scott are helping out. Uh, And uh, I don't know. My wife would love for me to retire. and um, I don't know what I would do if I did retire because a cartoonist artist doesn't stop drawing yeah. when they retire right um, but right do you have this... any suggestions no <laughs> <laughs> well maybe maybe you'll paint you know i mean but oh, uh that's what hank did is that what hank did when he retired he yeah, took up he he did some of the best fine art in fact he started a traveling art show of all of his paintings and drawings it was called from dennis to matisse he loved <laughs> Matisse's work and that style of painting. But, I mean, he was so quick and creative, and he, he worked out of his studio there in Pebble Beach and um, sold some of his paintings. He did a series of cartoonists, famous cartoonists uh, mm-hmm. that were still around, and he would just do a portrait of them. Wow. Um, yeah. And Matisse, uh, it's interesting because Matisse was all about color. And Matisse was also very, um, you know, fluent. There was a kind of freedom in the way Matisse applied paint and drew, you know. So it's kind of interesting to see that that Ketchum would be a Matisse fan because he was so much a taskmaster when it came to the way things were represented in Dennis. That's true. But I think maybe in retirement, he wanted that more freedom of impressionistic style instead of detail right um, okay and that may be why he went that direction because it was relaxing to him he'd had enough of the other <laughs> yeah <laughs> after all those uh, years but i have been very fortunate and i'm so thankful to hank for taking a chance on me and and realizing it was that one phone call that gave me this opportunity if i had given up when my career ended as an illustrator and here I was working over at Walmart, thinking, what am I going to do next? Be a Walmart greeter or something? Uh, oh and But then I saw that interview and something in my head just said, there's an opportunity. And I yeah. took advantage of it. And I was prepared. All, as you said before, you have to be prepared. When I look back, that first career as an illustrator wasn't my career that was my preparation so that Hank would see what I had done and hired me to take over drawing the Dennis dailies. It's an amazing story. It really is. And, and I have to say, you know, I think anybody who lives long enough, it goes through these ups and downs in their life and their career. And at some point or another, you know, you find yourself um, wondering how you got where you got and, and you know why you didn't take this road or why you didn't take that road and and it's easy to despair it's easy yeah. to particularly you know in the field that we're in in the field of the arts there are these moments where you feel isolated and alone 
uh, you feel at sea, you don't feel any support. And what you show, which is shown in your story is that not only do you, you know, have to have the preparation, but you have to be able to take the leap of faith in a way, uh, take that step forward and take the initiative when it's presented to you. And and who knows what might happen. And don't give up. Don't Don't give give up. up. Don't give up. Believe in yourself. And I think that's a wonderful message to come from from your story. And, uh, you know, it's just really it it took me by surprise when I found out that that was, you know, the story behind your coming to work for Dennis. And um, I just think it's it's an incredible tale because I I do know a lot of people who were uh, illustrators in that period of time. Uh-huh. I went to school with some very talented people who had begun illustration careers in the early 80s and were doing pretty well in into the 90s. And then all of a sudden the bottom dropped out of illustration, mm. their yeah. particular kind of illustration, painterly illustration and whatnot, hand-drawn illustration. And all of a sudden, you know, it was gone. Uh, and it wasn't at the time that, you know, it wasn't like now when magazines are going out of business left and right because of... But, you know, it was a different time. It was a switch to a different kind of image making. And all of a sudden, all these folks found themselves out of business and at sea. And it was hard for a lot of people. And uh, some continued, some didn't. It reminds me of one thing I'd like to close with. that um, Mm -hmm. When I go do programs for senior adults or kids or anything, but usually if it's the adults, no matter where I go do it or who's there, somebody always comes up after my program is over and they'll say, thank you so much for sharing what you did because I'm going through the same kind of situation right now and I'm wanting to give up, but you were saying you didn't give up and that's when that opportunity came along. And that makes me feel so much better that they didn't just see it that, hey, that guy's up there bragging about what he's doing. I'm not bragging. I'm ex- experiencing something that I want other people to know can happen to them if they'll just keep the faith and stick with it and don't give up. And that that is particularly, you know, right now we're going through the 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 COVID crisis. So many people have lost jobs and, you know, yeah. uh, maybe looking at the a blank wall and thinking you know what what do they do next and and on the edge of giving up and and uh and your story is an inspiration you know for for people to keep going because you don't know what's when one door closes another one opens you don't know what's around the corner it's a hard lesson to keep with you every day but it's true well i agree with you jeff and i appreciate the opportunity that you've given me today uh i've enjoyed talking with you it's it's been my uh, my honor and my pleasure. I mean, uh, I I feel you know it's just wonderful to it's it's wonderful to talk to you to to hear all these stories. It's wonderful to learn about your career, and I feel as though I'm t- I'm I'm speaking to you know somebody who's carrying the torch forward for comics, and and uh, you know you're an inspiration, Marcus. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Well, I want to say I looked up your work on your website, (laughs) and I was amazed at the versatility and the different styles and mediums that you work in. You're very talented. Well, well, golly, 
from jeez come that that thank you very much i coming from someone like yourself as accomplished as you are that means you don't know that means a lot to me so i i thank you very much for that you didn't have to say that i appreciate doing what you're doing and sharing some of these stories on your podcast too i i will because you know i love what sounds like calling (laughs) <laughs> okay, well, maybe it's time for us to hang up. Uh, okay, thanks, Jay. Thank you, Marcus. I'll be in touch. And thank you for All being right. a... <laughs> Fuck your daughter. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's all I have to say after that interview is just, wow. It was a great interview. What a wonderful conversation. Marcus is just so wonderful and such a great storyteller. And it was so nice to spend an afternoon talking with him. And it just, it makes me want to go back and reread Dennis the Menace and, and dive deep into, uh, uh, you know, that comic strip and, and, check out Marcus's work and you know it's just it it renews my appreciation for the Dennis the Menace comic strip and the achievement of Hank Ketchum and all of those who've worked with him to ensure the longevity of this wonderful comic strip and in that spirit next week we are going to be talking to Ron Ferdinand who is the Sunday strip artist for Dennis the Menace and who worked for Hank Ketchum even longer than Marcus has going back to the 1980s, early 1980s. And so I think I can't wait for that conversation. Again, we will we'll learn more about Hank Ketchum. We're going to learn more about the production of Dennis the Menace and, and what goes into the production of the Sunday strip today. And, and I'm sure that he's got some incredible stories to tell. So I am really looking forward to that. And following on the heels of Ron Ferdinand, I'll be talking to Jan Elliott of Stone Soup which is going to be terrific. And then we have another torchbearer, if you will, of a legacy comic strip, John Rose, who does Snuffy Smith. And boy, that's going to be a really interesting conversation because Snuffy Smith, Barney Google, just celebrated 100 years. And I'm sure John has lots to say about where that strip has been and where it's going. So I think we've got a full roster of comic strip artists coming up in the next month or so. Hopefully, we'll do our part to help you while away the hours while we are in a pause or a lockdown during the the days of COVID-19. Now I'd like to take a moment just to give a shout out to a friend of the show, John Vaughn. John Vaughn is an excellent cartoonist who's worked on a comic strip called Pork and Beans, among other things. And it's because of John's efforts on behalf of the show that I was able to connect with Marcus and we were able to arrange this wonderful interview today. So thank you, John. And if you're interested in John's cartooning, you can find John on Instagram at johnvaughn7. That's J-O-N-V-A-U-G-H-A-N-7. And hey, while you're on Instagram, you might as well find me. <laughs> That's at Grogan Jeff, at G R O G A N. G-E-O-F-F. Hey, and don't forget to check out my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. Any amount you can contribute to the support of this program is greatly appreciated. That'll do it for this week's episode. Get set for another deep dive into Dennis the Menace territory next time when we talk to Ron Ferdinand, the cartoonist behind the Sunday Dennis the Menace since 
the 1980s. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are too. And until then, thanks for listening. Thank you.